This week on Southcrest Live, we take a break from our normal sermon series for a special guest. Zach Randalls was a one-time member of Southcrest and now the founding pastor of Waterfront Church in Washington, D.C., a thriving church plant that Southcrest helps to sponsor. Under his leadership, Waterfront has been seeing tremendous growth and a significant impact in D.C., He's a gifted communicator and compelling Bible teacher and was our recent guest in the Southcrest pulpit. We know you'll be both encouraged and challenged as Zach Randalls presents the Word of God in this week's Southcrest Live podcast. Amen. Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Southcrest. Uh, my name is Zach Randalls, and I have the privilege of being the founding pastor of Waterfront Church in Washington, D.C. Uh, I appreciate you bearing with me on the video. Um, it's a hard story for me to tell, and uh, uh, the Virginia Baptist Convention was very, very kind to put that video together for me because they watched me cry over and over again every time I would tell the story. It's impossible to tell the story of our church getting started and not tie into it uh, the death of my father, and uh, I wanted to say thank you to you. Uh, these halls are very familiar. Other than the new spaces y'all have built, these halls are very familiar. Um, my dad pastored Indiana Avenue Baptist Church for many years, uh, and uh, I always had been told where I was supposed to go to church because my dad was the pastor. And so uh, your church has the distinction of being the first church I ever got to choose to go to. Uh, when my dad went into evangelism, uh, we, uh, we again, I lost my job. I'd always been the preacher's kid, and I lost my job uh, when the new pastor came on board. And and uh, uh, Pastor David has just been so kind and so wonderful. I can still remember you and Laura singing in those pageants, the Christmas pageants years ago. And uh, again, your church has just been so kind uh, to my family. And uh, the way I catalog my sermon illustrations is the way that Pastor David taught me to. We were on a choir tour together when I was a junior in high school. And your pastor took the time to go with the students and to sit with me on the bus. Uh, and he taught me how to preach. And so, uh, again, I just am so grateful for you. Thank, for you. thank you for what you poured into our church. Our little church is six years old, and I bring you good tidings of great joy in a place where churches don't typically uh, get to live. We are seven-tenths of a mile from the Capitol building, and ladies and gentlemen, last Sunday, we had more than 700 people in our worship services uh, there in D.C. It's just been amazing. We also had the distinction this last year, we baptized our 100th person, uh, and most of the people that we baptized in our area have been adults. And so uh, this is also very exciting. I didn't tell the first service this, so you guys get a, a sneak peek, all right? Um, but we did a baptism sign-up sheet last week, and we had 32 people sign up uh, for our baptism class for next week. And so also very exciting. Church planters can't get started without help. And I want to say thank you to you. You've been wonderful partners to us on every level. Uh, and thank you again for taking the time to pour into us and to stand in the gap for us. If you got your Bibles, open to uh, Philippians chapter 2 and then also to Genesis chapter 40. Philippians chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 40. One other shout out very quick. You guys have a wonderful missions pastor named Gary Beatty. And Gary has been one who has specifically stood in the gap for us. Uh, and uh, I just wanted to publicly say thank you to him as well. All right. Enough of that mushy stuff. All right. Let's jump in. Um, just for the record, a little start here as we, uh, questions we get started. Has anything delicate ever survived multiple moves in your house? All right. Has anything delicate ever survived multiple moves? So we moved our family 
family from Lubbock, Texas, all the way across the country to Washington, D.C., and I live in a house with a nine-year-old, an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, and a two-year-old, all right? Delicate things do not last in our house very long, all right? Grubby little hands move them, and again, if you've moved before, sometimes stuff gets shifted or broken uh, in the move. But one item has existed all the way through, and that is for our family. My wife, when she was at Texas Tech University, bought a snow globe that has the Texas Tech campus on the inside of the snow globe. And one of the things I love, it's got Jones Stadium in there, and the scoreboard says Texas Tech 45, Texas A&M 0. You got to love that on the inside of the snow globe, all right? Now, here's the beautiful thing about a snow globe. A snow globe, if you shake it up, a snow globe has its own ecosystem. And I'm telling you, on the inside, you can make it snow, you can make it whatever, you, know, you can swirl. Some of you have, a, have really sick minds and you create a vortex in there, you know what I mean? So it looks like a tornado's rolling through uh, the area. Sometimes it's got a snowman in there, but it is its own confined space. Now listen to me. One of the biggest problems when it comes to missions and our attitude of living missionally is our own selfishness. Our own selfishness is the stumbling block that we run into. And honestly, it's like a snow globe. The snow globe is a false reality. The snow globe is, again, uh, this idea that it's not the real world. The real world's on the outside, but inside the snow globe is its own contained ecosystem. When we don't see beyond ourselves, it's like we're trapped inside our own snow globe. If we are to truly fulfill the Great Commission and take the gospel to the ends of the earth as we were commanded to by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we have got to see beyond ourselves to the outside of our snow globe. Paul writes about that in Philippians chapter 2 starting in verse 3. Here's what, here's what Paul says. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Underline do nothing. What a powerful word at the beginning. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. And each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. I love the way he sums it up in verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Now stop there for just a minute. What Paul writes to us is that when it comes to our interactions with the outside world, we don't need to be caught in this modern mentality of I'll take care of of me and then with what's left over, I'll take care of others. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but to consider others before we consider ourselves. When we live that way, you can't stop the people from walking through the doors of this church. When we live that way, you see revival take place in your family. When we live that way, we see marriages get reconciled. When we live beyond ourselves and get out of our snow globe, that's when we see the great commission get fulfilled. The problem is all of us are selfish, including pastors. Pastors are not immune from this. I'll never forget, I had a dear friend when uh, my wife was pregnant with our first child. I had a dear friend and he said, dude, when you have that new baby, you will find out just how selfish you always were. And I said, well, what are you talking about? He goes, you'll see, you'll see. It's going to happen in the middle of the night, but you will see how selfish you really are. Well, our sweet daughter, Lulu, Lulu's a zero percentile. And when she was born, she was just so tiny. She was term and she was only five pounds and 11 ounces, just little, little bitty. I'll never forget. Two months go by and my wife and I set up a flow where she took care of Lulu through part of the night and I took care of Lulu through the other part. But Lulu had been up, she'd been crying, and during my wife's shift, 
All of a sudden, Lulu starts crying. And my wife rolls over and she goes, Zach, I am so tired. She said, can you take a turn? And I'm gonna be 100% honest with you. This is confession time. My first thought was, I need to pretend like I'm asleep. Okay, that is honestly (laughs) what I thought. I need to pretend like I'm asleep. And I justified it with, it's her turn anyway, all right? I need to pretend that I'm asleep and just the, the sensation of guilt will pass, right? And then we can move forward. But here's the problem. The problem is, it's selfishness. I took a vow before God and those witnesses present that I was gonna make sure that I put her before myself and her needs before my own. So praise God, I did not give in to temptation that day and I took the baby, all right? Now listen, selfishness, it creeps in and like a virus, it manifests itself into all of our relationships. If you're taking notes, write this down. Selfish, or selflessness should not be uncommon in a disciple's walk. Let me say that again. Selflessness should not be uncommon in a disciple's walk. When it comes to living a missional life, it begins with the practice of looking past yourself, of getting out of your snow globe and seeing this amazing world that God has created and people that are in need all around us that we have the chance to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ to them. I didn't plan on talking about this, but I feel like the Lord has called for it this morning. Sometimes we get frustrated with God because there's a change in our phase of life and maybe we lived selflessly for a time, but a change in our circumstances, sometimes a change in job, Sometimes the death of a spouse, sometimes a change in relationships, sometimes a change in our energy habits, sometimes a change in our finances causes us to look at God and we look at him, stick our fist in his face and go, why have you put me in these circumstances? I could serve so much better if I wasn't left at this disadvantage. This last week, I was studying Acts chapter 28 in my Bible study time. And when you read the story of Paul, Paul was so powerful in the way he navigated change and would allow the Lord to use him in different seasons of his life in different ways. When you read the beginning of the book of Acts, Paul's the powerful preacher. He's the great church planter of all time. He's the mouthpiece sharing the gospel with the world. But after Jerusalem, Paul ends up in a different role. He moves from planter, from preacher, from powerful speaker, to encourage her. You remember in Acts 28, Paul ends up on the island of Malta and it was probably the lowest point of his life. He thought he was going to die in Jerusalem and instead he's shipwrecked on the island of Malta. He's cold. There's a language barrier so he can't even share the gospel with the villagers that he's interacting with. And then as he's building a fire, it says a venomous snake bites his hand and the word that's used in scripture is it fastens to his hand. The snake is hanging off and then the villagers look and they go, oh, he's going to die. He's going to die. Man, this guy must have been a murderer or a criminal or something because that snake bit him. We've watched the vipers bite people over and over again and they always end up dead. And what does Paul do? He shakes off the viper into the fire and it says then the people look at him and they go, well, he must be a God. He didn't die. He must have some deep spiritual connection. And then all of a sudden, Paul has this ministry with them. He was not the powerful preacher. He was not the church planter at that moment. But he turned out to be one who encouraged the gospel message. Acts 28 ends with a very interesting story. It doesn't end with Paul's death. Acts 28 ends with Paul under house arrest for two years. Go back and read it. It says that for two years, 
Paul stayed in his own rented house and for two years he preached the gospel with boldness and without hindrance in his home. Now listen to me. When life changes, we feel like that is a license to be selfish. I deserve it because I'm going through it right now. I deserve to focus on me because I'm going through it right now. But that's not biblical. What is biblical is what Paul does. Sometimes I'm the big preacher. Sometimes I'm the great evangelist. Sometimes I'm the mouthpiece of God to the masses. But he serves God just as powerfully in the two years when he's the encourager to the churches he's planted, writing letters, when he's the encourager to young pastors to stand strong and to stand on the gospel message, when he encourages the guards that watch his house. Are you okay with making those transitions? Or are you the person who restlessly and angrily sticks your fist in God's face because it ain't like it used to be? We've got to come to the point that we live missionally. Get out of your snow globe and trust that God is doing something in our days that will affect the entire universe with the gospel message. It begs our big million dollar question today. How do we go about putting others before ourselves? I wanna give you some very, very practical truths today from the book of Genesis chapter 40. Flip over to Genesis chapter 40 and we're gonna address that question today. How do we go about putting others before ourselves? Genesis chapter 40 and we're gonna start in verse one. If there was ever a person who had the right to look at God and say, I don't wanna do this, I got a raw deal and I need to focus on me right now, it is Joseph in the book of Genesis. Joseph has gotten a raw deal. He has this vision that God is gonna make him shine like the stars in the heavens, that he's gonna be one who is a person of influence. God is gonna use him uh, to take care of not just the nation of Egypt, but bless uh, the world through him as he walks them through the time of famine. But at this moment, he's been sold into slavery. He's been wrongfully accused of sexual assault there wasn't enough evidence to convict him. So they've left him in limbo in this federal prison. And that day, if there was ever anybody to go, Lord, I'm living in my snow globe. I'm focusing on me right now. It would have been Joseph, but he didn't do that. Joseph makes the decision. I'm going to live for Yahweh, whether I'm in prison, whether I'm enslaved, whether I'm doing the work for someone else or whether I'm able to recruit for my own life. And in the beautiful story there in Genesis chapter 40, we get Joseph having influence over some other prisoners. Look at what happens in Genesis chapter 40 and starting in verse one. It says, sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in the custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the same prison where Joseph was confined. Now the captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph and he attended to them. And after he had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream the same night and each dream had a meaning of its own. It says, when Joseph came to them the next morning, right, watch this, he saw that they were dejected. Underline and highlight, he saw that they were dejected. Instead of living in his snow globe, Joseph has been put in charge of these two men to help them assimilate into this life in prison. And what happens in this moment is in the, if he was in the snow globe, he would have missed it. But instead, Joseph notices a change. He sees a change in the pattern and the flow of life for both the cupbearer and for the baker. If you're taking notes, write this down. How do we go about putting others before ourselves? Number one, we must genuinely see people. We must genuinely see people. 
He didn't just look past them. He was involved in their lives enough to know when something was changing, when something was going on. We live in a world right now where we see a lot of people through Facebook online, or we see a lot of people through things on the internet, or even through passing here at the church. But to truly live missionally, to reach the world and fulfill the Great Commission, we have got to see people genuinely for where they're at. We've got to take some time to step into their snow globe. Take some time to see what they're going through. Just for the record, this takes time. And sometimes even when we are offering up our efforts, we can still miss what's taking place. I'll never forget, I took a group of students one time to Washington, D.C., the last mission trip we did to D.C., and while we were there, we were trying to give the students a heart for uh, homeless mission work and, and trying to take care of the people around us. And here's what happened. We went and we bought a whole bunch of sausage biscuits from McDonald's, prayed with the students. We were in a big 15 passenger van, had a group of senior boys with me, and we prayed that God would open doors so that we could minister to people in the community. I'll never forget, we pull up just north of the White House. And while we're there, we see a woman who's sitting up against the wall and she's wearing a head covering. I saw her, but I didn't really see her. One of the boys said, Pastor Zach, should we give her a sausage biscuit? She looks like she's hungry. I said, yeah, man, we should. I said, why don't you go out, do that, ask her if you can pray for her. He says, okay. He hops out, gets the sandwich in his hand, walks over to her and says, ma'am, are you hungry? She says, oh, I'm very hungry. Thank you so much, young man. He hands her the sausage biscuit, says, can I pray for you? She says, oh, thank you, young man. And he prays for her in Jesus' name right there. Well, he bounds back to the van. And when he bounds back to the van, we're all giving him a thumbs up going, man, way to go, dude, way to go. Hands and feet of Jesus Christ right here. He gets back in the van and all of a sudden the woman walks up and knocks on our window. She says, excuse me, sirs, excuse me. We turn to look like, oh, she's just come to tell us thank you. We roll down the window. She takes the breakfast sandwich, spikes it on the ground, and then gives us the finger, and then goes back and sits up against the wall. Some of you have figured it out. I look at the group, I didn't see her. I look at the group and I go, well, some people... Some people just are not grateful. Some people just don't get it. We could have given that sandwich to somebody else, but she threw it on the ground. Some people just cannot receive help. About a week later, back in Texas, I saw her. I was sitting at my desk and all of a sudden it hit me like a ton of bricks. She was wearing a head covering. She's a cultural Muslim. We gave her a pork product. In Jesus' name. Now listen to me. I saw her, but I didn't see her. And I did not make the name of Jesus Christ famous that day. I made it infamous. It looked like we had done that on purpose to stick it to her for her culture. Now listen to me. You can't reach the world until you see them. Not just as a project not just as someone who needs help. We've got to get on their level and genuinely see what they're going through. Now, just for the record, that doesn't just go for mission work. That goes for your own household too. There's some of you trying to mend your marriage. You can't mend the marriage if you don't see each other. 
If you don't genuinely see what the other person is going through, some of you are broken for your children, for them to know Jesus Christ the way that you do. You've got to genuinely see what they're going through, not just throwing darts spiritually at their life so that they'll catch the truth, share the gospel message, but get in their world, climb in their snow globe so that you can truly see what they're going through. If you're taking notes, it begs this question. Do you see people like Jesus saw people? Do you see people like Jesus saw people? Just for the record, you would say, how did Jesus see people? It's Matthew 9, 36. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Think through this. When he sees the people with their problems, when he sees the vastness of the need, it says that he didn't see it go, oh, they're gross. Oh, they're disgusting. No, quite the opposite. He saw them and he was filled with compassion because in climbing into their world, Jesus knows it's hard to live here. It's why it's so powerful. The Bible says, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God loved you so much that he sent his son on a rescue mission that your sin might not be counted against you, that you live in eternity with perfect lo- in perfect love with the God who created the universe. Look with me, if you will, at the next part of the verse. So he sees these men. Look at verse 7. It says, so after seeing them, so he asked Pharaoh's officials, underline he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, why are your faces so sad today? Stop right there for just a minute. It's not enough to see the hurting world. What Joseph does then is he initiates interaction with them by asking them a question. There are some of you in this room, and I'm telling you, you are bleeding heart, deeply connected, compassionate people, but you're not good just because you have those feelings and emotions. Joseph was special and living a life of discipleship because he saw the need and then he went and initiated contact by asking a question. If you're taking notes, write that down. How do we go about putting others before ourselves? Number one, we must genuinely see people. And number two, we must initiate interaction. I want to teach you a pastoral secret. Are you ready? There's two words that could change your entire life. When you perceive a need or it even seems like there are waves and something is off. Practice this, it's a two word question. You good? You good could change your marriage. You good could change your relationship with your kids. You good could change your working situation. You good could change your community involvement and you, you good could actually change the entire country. I'm just telling you, you good is you saying, I am inviting you to invite me into your snow globe. Sometimes when you say you good, you know what they respond with? I'm good. I've said it long enough. There are times I'll say you good and that person was waiting for someone to light the fuse so that they could spew and emotionally vomit everything that they've been going through through that stretch. You would be shocked. There are times that you good is an opportunity for them to unleash and unburden something that has been so heavy in their heart and life. We avoid contact sometimes because we're afraid of what that could lead to. Our God loved us so much that the word became flesh and initiated contact with us. He made his dwelling among us. If you're taking notes, write this down. To see brokenness and do nothing is a sign of deeply rooted selfishness. Let me say that again. To see brokenness and do nothing is a sign of deeply rooted selfishness. 
There are some of you in this room who can feel the fist of conviction in your gut because the Spirit has already prompted you to help someone. And now he's gripped your gut and has told you, after the service is over, it is time to go. It is time to reach out and initiate that interaction. And then we have one more final verse today. Look with me, if you will, at Genesis chapter 40, verse 8. He sees the issue with these men. He asks if he can be a part of their discussion. He asks why they're, he initiates contact. And now look at verse 8. It says, we both had dreams, they answered, but there's no one to interpret them. It says, then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Joseph's so shrewd. Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. Underline and highlight, tell me your dreams. After seeing the problem and initiating contact, Joseph has margin in his schedule to say, your problem is a problem that Yahweh can solve. He serves as a big neon sign pointing to the Lord. Not let the little children come unto me, come to me with your problems. I'm your solution. No, he points to Yahweh and says, Yahweh's the one who interprets the dream. Why don't you tell me your story? And then from there, we can figure out if there's something we can do together. Hearing people's story is so powerful because then we begin to understand the role that the Spirit has for us in their process. If you're taking notes, write this down. How do we go about putting others before ourselves? Number one, we must genuinely see people. Number two, we must initiate interaction. And number three, we must hear their story. When's the last time you just let somebody talk? And by the way, this doesn't just go for random people. When's the last time you just let your spouse talk about whatever they wanted to talk about and you genuinely listened to what they had to say? I know that sounds like marriage 101, but you would figure this gets forgotten along the way sometimes. With your kids, when's the last time you just let your kids talk? You would be shocked at what you could learn in 30 minutes of them just talking hear their story. And then if you're taking notes, write this down. Last quote for you today. Much of the Holy Spirit's leading will unfold in the course of hearing a person's story. Much, so much of the Holy Spirit's leading will unfold in the course of hearing a person's story. For me personally, when I stop to really listen, in the midst of the story, I feel a spirit's kick in my gut and all of a sudden I go, I can help with that. I can do something about that. I can pray for that and add the person to my prayer list. I can go and meet with this person. And all of a sudden I begin to see my role through the Holy Spirit in that person's missional development. When people do that for us, it is truly life-changing. One last story and we'll close. My dad did that for me years ago. I had drifted into a stretch I'm not proud of, 18 months. I went to Oklahoma State for school. I drifted into a period where for 18 months I quit going to church. I was waiting tables at the finest restaurant in America, Red Lobster, all right? <laughs> waited tables at Red Lobster for four and a half years. And I'll never forget, I got into a period of my life where I was so stressed that I actually thought about dropping out of school. Now, I don't know about you guys, but the way I am, I can kind of be a chihuahua sometimes, church planters are, and I just got so nervous about everything. I'm the type of person that I'm like, ah, I'm so nervous, there's too much going on, there's so many things, and my wife always looks at me and she goes, make a list, would you just make a list? And I'm like, it's too long, it'll take forever to make that list. And she goes, just make a list. And she goes, what's bothering you? And sure enough, it's like three things, right? And that was bothering me so badly. I'm like, wow, it really was just three things. That was it. To have the time to tell your story, and unburden 
creates a moment where the Spirit reminds us and provides us hope that it's not so bad. So my senior year in college, my dad did that for me. My dad called me because he saw a change in me and he said, son, I need to initiate contact. I'm coming through Stillwater. He said, can I meet with you and just check on you? And I go, I got too much going on, dad. I got to work a shift and then I've got homework to do. I said, I just don't have time. And dad goes, I get it, you're busy. He said, across the street from Red Lobster is Mexico Joe's, all right? Mexico Joe's is a Mexican food restaurant right across the street. And dad said, how about this? He said, when you get done, he said, I'm just gonna be sitting over there. He said, when you get done with your shift, he said, come over, we'll eat some enchiladas and we'll walk through your story. Well, sure enough, I get off in plenty of time. I walk across the street and my dad's there and he had a blue rollerball pin. He always used rollerball pins. He had a blue rollerball pin. He grabbed a napkin and he said, son, I got an hour and a half before I have to get on the road. He said, just start talking. I go, you don't have enough time. You don't have enough time to go through all my struggles. And he said, he drew a number one and circled it. And he said, tell me your first issue. And I walked him through it and he wrote it down. He wrote a number two and circled it and said, what's your second problem? And he listened and wrote it down. It turned out it was eight things, eight issues that I thought had pushed me to the brink where I had to drop out of school. After it was done, it took an hour. And he said, son, I got 30 more minutes. He said, I think you have some decisions to make. And underneath number one, he wrote a letter A and he said, I think your options are this and this. You're gonna have to make a choice. He got to number two and he said, I think your options are this, this, and this. And he said, you're gonna have to make a choice. He was so brilliant. He knew what the right decisions were, but he let me come to that decision on my own. He goes through all eight points, passes it over to me and he said, well, he goes, that's an hour and a half. He said, son, I think you're gonna be okay. And then on his way out, he stopped and said, and by the way, you're never gonna find any peace until you go back to church. You know that, don't you? I love you. He prayed for me and then he left. I still have the napkin. It's got crusty half-eaten enchilada on it. That's like 18 years old now, all right? <laughs> that moment, my wife this year, this Christmas, she said, we gotta get this thing framed at some point. She said, it was the turning point for your entire spiritual walk. And it happened because my dad took an hour and a half and stepped into my snow globe. Who in your life do you need to take some time, mark off some margin, and then just let them talk? Just let them talk. We got a guy in our church, I shared this example, and uh, he came up to me uh, two weeks after, and he came up and he goes, man, he goes, I got to learn more about that TV show, The Bachelor, than I ever hoped to. He said, I gave my wife an open-ended time to talk. He said, I didn't even know she watched The Bachelor, and she explained the whole thing to me through that stretch. He said, then after that, we got to have a real conversation about us for the first time in a long time. See people genuinely. You know, you in West Texas have a gift. You have the gift of hospitality. It's been ingrained in each one of us. Our former congressman, guy named Randy Nagabauer, Randy and Dana were founding members of our church in DC. And Randy said for years, we thought a church based on the truth of scripture with a little West Texas hospitality might just be able to make it in this city. You have the gift of hospitality, but listen to me. 
It's not about the actions alone. You've got to see people genuinely where they're at. And then initiate contact, pray for a double portion of courage through the Holy Spirit, and then mark off time in your schedule so that you can genuinely listen to what they're going through. You do that, you're gonna be able to fulfill the Great Commission from right here in this church. I love you guys. Thank you for being friends to us. We call this in our church our time of reflection. We call it invitation. I'd like to ask you not to tune out, but stick with me just these next few moments. If we bow our heads and close our eyes. With every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody looking around but just me. In our church, we do call this our time of reflection. It's nothing mystical or magical. It's just a chance for us to stop and to process how we're different after the songs we've sung, the sermon we've heard, and specifically the scripture that we've read. With nobody looking around but just me, is there anyone here that would say, Zach, would you pray for me? I see people, but I really genuinely want to see them, not just at face value, but I want to see what they're going through so that I can become a part missionally of their journey towards Jesus. With nobody looking around but just me, is there anyone here that would say, Zach, would you pray for me? Would you pray that God would open my eyes to see those around me? If that's you, if you would just lift your hand where you are right now. Oh, so many of you, so many of you. Y'all can put your hands down, maybe half the room. When you see them, the Holy Spirit is able to work in a way like you never dreamed possible. I'm gonna pray for you. But if that was you that lifted your hand, I wanna encourage you, just pray this simple prayer. God, open my eyes to see what you see. God, open my eyes to see what you see. And then for some of you, if you feel led, the altar is gonna be open. Just sneak up here, kneel, and then pray your simple prayer. God, open my eyes to see what you see. Second, maybe there are some of you here that would say, Zach, I am filled with compassion. I see the need all around me, but I've just been too afraid to take that step and initiate interaction. I think you'd be shocked at the relationship people are starving for. With nobody looking but just me, if you're here and you'd say, Zach, pray for me. Pray that I would have a double portion of courage to initiate contact with those in need. If that's you, if you would just lift your hand where you are right now, ready, set, go. Thank you. Thank you, so many of you. Y'all can put your hands down. Thank you. If that's you, I'm gonna pray for you. But your prayer is this, God give me a double portion of courage that I might be your hands and feet to the world. If that's you, the altar is gonna be open as well. And then last but not least, maybe there are some of you here that would say, Zach, I see the issues, Zach, I've initiated contact, but it's time for me to let them tell their story, not to force them into a 10 minute window, but truly give them time just to talk through what's on their heart. For some of you, the spirit is calling out to you to do that in your marriage. He's calling out to you to do that with your children like my father did for me. He's calling out to you to do that with your coworker on a lunch break. With nobody looking but just me, if you're here and you'd say, Zach, would you pray for me? I need to truly listen to someone's story. I need to let them talk so the spirit can move. If that's you, if you would just lift your hand where you are right now, ready, set, go. Thank you. Thank you. That's powerful. Thank you. Y'all can put your hands down. If that was you, 
The altar's gonna be open. I wanna encourage you, just come and kneel and say, God, give me margin so that I can give it back to you. God, give me margin so I can give it back to you. I'm gonna pray for us and then we'll stand to our feet and then Pastor David is gonna take control of the service. You have such a loving pastor. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your blessings in it. Thank you for the chance that we've had to study your word. And Lord, thank you for the example of Joseph. When he could have been selfish, he looked beyond himself to the interest of others. Lord, I pray for those who are here today begging for eyes that see what you see. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, you would give them what they seek. Lord, I pray for those today needing a double portion of courage that they might interact and initiate that interaction with the world around them. Lord, I pray that as they have that courage, as you provide for them, I pray that there would be testimonies of amazing things that you have done as they fight through that fear in your name. And Lord, for those who just need to mark off the time and let someone else talk, I pray a double blessing on their life as they do that, that we would see your great commission fulfilled as we are not only your hands and feet, but as we are your ears to the world around us. We love you, Lord. Thank you for coming after us. Empower us as in your name we go after the world. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. A compelling message today from our friend and ministry associate, Pastor Zach Randalls from Waterfront Church in Washington, D.C. Thank you for joining us for this dynamic message from the Word of God. If you felt led to make a decision for Christ today, please respond by going to southcrestlive.tv to share that with us. Be sure to catch our next installment of the Southcrest Live podcast.